Kassat Podcast Network. Lions and Tigers and Bears MI is brought to you through a collaboration between the Mountain Plains ATTC and NFAR Tech. In episode 18, Paul and Amy discuss changes to the upcoming edition of motivational interviewing with an MI practitioner. For episode resources, links to episodes, contact us, and other information, please visit the Lions and Tigers and Bears MI website at mtplanesattc.org forward slash podcast. and Tigers and Bears, MI, an interactive podcast focused on the evidence-based practice of motivational interviewing, a method of communication that guides toward behavior change while honoring autonomy. I'm Amy Shanahan. And I'm Paul Warren. And we've worked together over the past 10 years. We've been facilitating MI learning collaboratives and providing trainings and coaching sessions focused on the adoption and refinement of MI we're also members of the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers. Join us in this adventure into the forest where we explore and get curious about what lies behind the curtain of MI. Hello. Hey, Paul. Hello, Amy. We are so fortunate to have a special guest appearance on our podcast today who is not Billy Joe Smith. No. And, no, no. And of course we look forward to having Billy Joe Smith back, but is it this, Dorothy? Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz? Uh no. No. Oh. In fact, it's a colleague of mine and her name is Helen Kaplan and I will let her introduce herself and tell us a little bit about what she does and what her thoughts are about what we're going to talk about in our podcast today. So Helen, thank you so much for being here. Hey, Helen, good to see you and meet you today. Thank you for having me, Paul and Amy. So I will try to give a, a very brief synopsis of me. Currently, I am working at an outpatient clinic in a rural area, central New York. I have clients. We do a bunch of evidence-based work. We have a nice connection with the ATTC, do trainings. Um, for myself, I'm a psychotherapist by training, but I have really focused on community practice since 1999. So the half, first half of my career, first 11 plus years was in straight mental health, community mental health. And then the last 11 plus years has been in addiction work. Um, my master's was at SUNY Buffalo. I did my undergrad at Cornell. I did focus on addiction from the get-go. So that's me. Well, I'm Go finding Buffalo out. Bills. Yeah, and I'm finding out things about you, Helen, that I, I didn't actually know. Well, there. So we're so glad you're here. And, you know, myself and Amy have kind of purposely kept you in the dark. <laughs> about exactly what we're going to talk about today. And I'm just wondering if you'd be willing to say a little bit about what you what your thoughts are about that and what we're going to focus on today. 
Well, you guys know a lot about the changes that are coming up ahead with regard to motivational interviewing and how it's structured. I don't know about those changes. So I'm just interested in hearing about it and dialoguing. Super. Well, that's why we wanted you to be here because we knew that maybe you hadn't been exposed to these changes that are coming down the line in terms of uh, the new edition of Bill Miller and Stephen Rolnick's book on motivational interviewing. And we thought, and you were game for it, we thought that it might be interesting to invite somebody who is practicing motivational interviewing as well as refining their practice on motivational interviewing to really get their take, their sort of thinking and feeling around these upcoming changes. So we really appreciate that you have been willing to sort of engage in this wild experiment with us. And we just learned about some of the particularities of the changes in a forum we went to in Chicago this year. And just to, not that I'm going to share any details, Helen, <laughs> some folks in the hall were buzzing around their reactions to some of these changes. So no pressure on thinking that this is a test about how you might react because some people liked some things and some people were like, Hmm, I wonder what that's all about. So just to neutralize this from a, you're not being put to any kind of test to affirm doctors, Miller and Rolnick, <laughs> the authors. Ooh, you've piqued my interest. And I think the other thing that Amy's doing there is she's really affirming your autonomy to buzz or not, depending on what you hear. <laughs> Got it. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps the place to really start with this is the change in the title. Because the title of the book has actually changed. And I am going to try and quote the current title. And both of you, please help me out if I don't hit it on the head. But I believe the current title of their third edition of the book is Motivational Interviewing, Helping People to Change. Is that correct? Or is it just helping people change? Amy's looking over her shoulder to get the book. I believe you're accurate, but I want to, whoops, I walked away from my mic. I want to make sure, well, you know, on the binder piece, it just says motivational interviewing. So I have to open right. up the book. Right. Go to the, go to the title page. Helping people change. You're right. Helping third people change. Third edition. Third yes. edition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the change that's coming down the road, and I think maybe it's also important to say that a lot of these changes have come from data and research that Dr. Miller and uh, Stephen Rolnick, Dr. Rolnick have looked at, as well as kind of a lot of conversation and reflection with people using motivational interviewing. So they are changing the title to motivational and this is not the first title change by the way they're changing the title to motivational interviewing helping people change and grow hmm. yeah so let's discuss 
What what are your thoughts about that? <laughs> <laughs> this is your first test, Helen. <laughs> I thought I thought you told Helen there would be no tests. Oh, oops. <laughs> There's no test. Well, you know, my initial first reaction from a practitioner standpoint is, wow, that sounds great. Changing and growing. Who doesn't want to change and grow, right? Mm. But if I think about it from the recipient of services point of view, it could feel, if it's not framed correctly, a bit of an imposition or in some ways implying that what presents is not good enough. <laughs> so that rather than taking a kind of humanistic, accepting the person as they are, it's sounding like, let's get them to a different place. <laughs> uh, let's, let's, you know, that's, isn't, this isn't good enough. It's kind of like a plant that's all stumpy or something, you know, mm. let's, let's make it grow. What kind of food do we need to feed it? It's not good enough as it is. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And almost, almost like seeming to, I'm going to frame it this way, that almost like there's a directive to grow as opposed to the opportunity for it, if it's indeed, that's what's indicated at the moment. Is that kind of what you're, you're saying? Yeah. Like I, I'm a big fan of say Byron Katie stuff. I don't know if you guys know her and she no. wrote oh she's fantastic she wrote this book called loving what is mm. and it's a lot about looking at reality and working with things that maybe you can't change and how mm. to not be at war with that mm. and so it's an interesting thing because you know in this title change we're looking at a dynamic which implies right from the get-go that we're seeking to see a shift versus trying to make what is is be and and find a way to make that work hmm. so it's interesting i'm not saying change and growth aren't good but one could argue that some people coming to us are truly going to struggle with that concept if they're mm -hmm. receiving services and that might offend them a little even just to see that title and that, that no, sounds a little wackadoodle but no it i think well it, it can sound however you think it sounds to me. It sounds very thoughtful mm. and important for us to understand and know, even as facilitators of this conversation and, and training people as we do and learning from people, because we always say language matters. And depending on the culture and depending on the person, that word may matter big, the phrasing and the importance of that phrasing might matter in a good and maybe not so good way to some people. I think that that's an important conversation to have. I, I wonder, I don't know, I don't know if it was articulated in the conversation from the reason why they added growth. I know the first edition specifically was about preparing people to change addictive behaviors. And then they, removed the addictive behavior because it was more inclusive of other change behaviors. And now they're, I think, contemplating that it can be about anything a person wants to change to better themselves. It doesn't necessarily have to be a behavior change, if that makes sense. So, but I think it's important to have this conversation and why we wanted to hear how you reacted to some of these changes that they're considering. And, you know, Helen, I have to say, 
you've already confirmed for me that you were the absolute right person to invite for this conversation because how people interpret these changes is going to have a lot to do with how they're kind of carried forward in practice and as as workers are trying to understand what it means to also now include grow in regard to that and you know your perspective is so intriguing to me because it had never occurred to me that that could be perceived as almost a, a pressuring directive for somebody. And it's so interesting because my understanding from a little snippet that I heard from Stephen Rolnick during a time when Amy and I got to speak with him, that they were kind of opening up the change focus to also include things that wouldn't necessarily be considered quote unquote behavioral changes. And they sort of landed on this idea of human growth or growing. Now the title doesn't explain that. So I, I think your insight is that depending on how it's interpreted, one could feel like, oh, not only now is the focus about me changing, it's also now about me. I Now I got to grow too. Right. Right. And like who defines growth? So like the cultural competency part of me asks, you know, is it the, I forgive me if this is going to offend somebody. There's no, I hope I'm not, but is it like a heteronormative person? Is it a, I mean, you could right. just go down the list, like who's defining that because in the hands of a, of um, a nefarious person, it could be very laden with agendas that don't necessarily serve the client. So I think hopefully individuals who are, who are going to be embracing this remember the core cons the core spirit of mi which is to really align with what the client defines as growth what they define as what's the other one change um, change there <laughs> yeah a, a client-centered change as well as client-centered growth not provider centered growth mm. And thanks for bringing in the culture piece too, Helen, because, you know, I think what you're, you're highlighting there is that, you know, as human beings providing services to other human beings, we all have our lenses, we all have our own bias. And that's where MI spirit becomes so critical because it, it helps us to not insert that agenda into the conversation. Mm-hmm. And important to open up the door to have these conversations about what these words mean. I think I shared it in one of the episodes that in one of my training, one person was really hung up on the word technique. And mm -hmm. no matter what the word or someone's perception or reaction to it is, allowing as learners and trainers and facilitators of change how do you create an environment where people are willing to have these conversations so that they can make sense of it for themselves and make their own choices about what it means to them and if it's important or not, right? So I think that this is a really important conversation to have about what does this all mean? And does change have the same connotation? Yeah. And does grow 
I mean, again, who's interpreting the growth? Who gets to decide what the growth is going to be? And again, Helen, thanks so much for bringing us back to MI Spirit because that is truly, and it's funny because one of the changes is also in MI Spirit, and we're going to get to that. But uh, but I'm just saying that as an intriguing preview and hook to, <laughs> but we will get there. And uh, I just I I really appreciate being brought back to that because it is client centered change, client centered growth which is very different than a provider's agenda. And, and as providers, we have agendas and we can share those agendas in a way that still can respect that person's autonomy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering if this is a, a good time to bridge in the evolving definition oh. that mm-hmm. they're going to add to the book because it also includes the word growth. And wonder what you think about this. I think from the context of what I understand is there's there's conversation around what's going into the book to simplify some of the terminology and uh, reduce some of the psychological lingo, although they'll keep some of that in there for folks who are in the professions. Um, but this is the evolving definition. Ellen, if you wanted to get a sense of how you react to this. Yeah, go for it, please. MI is a particular way of talking with people about change and growth to strengthen their own motivation and commitment. That second part is so critical. It softens the defensiveness that might come up if you just had the the constructs of change and growth. So yeah, that second part makes it palatable. It adds that whole notion of autonomy. Mm -hmm. Can you read the second part again, Amy? Sure. Growth to strengthen their own motivation and commitment. So MI is a particular way of talking with people Mm -hmm. about change and growth to strengthen their own motivation and commitment. To strengthen their own, i.e., client-centered, back to just reminding us client-centered change, client-centered growth, if that's indeed what the person wants to do. Mm-hmm. Which they may not. Yeah. But yeah, if you can get on the same page, cool. Like it's a it's a great change and growth. I'd be, I'll be interested to hear more about, and you, you guys might not know this all right now, but exactly how they might expand on those two things beyond what they did in that first edition or second Mm. edition we're on, but. It actually makes me much more excited to read the new edition because it's, you know, it's supposedly significantly shorter and they have intentionally, uh, kind of corralled some of the you know psychological or clinical jargon into boxes if you want to read that which i'm sure i'll be interested in that as well but to be able to kind of read it through and and, and you know i it's funny it just popped into my head i'm reminded of something that bill has said uh on numerous occasions where he says you know you can't learn motivational interviewing from reading my book. So 
so having these conversations and then taking that into sort of reflecting on practice are, I think, are what will make the difference. Mm-hmm. Definitely. You remind me, um, I was just talking to one of my staff people today about dialectical behavioral therapy, which mm-hmm. we have that huge, you know, the Linehan huge um, manuals. And they're so, they're so dense. They're so intense. It's great, but you don't always feel like slogging through the minutia of it. And so then there's these other books that make it user friendly, but it, you know, whatever they can do to take that jargon out and make it so that it's accessible. I like their, I actually like their first edition. I enjoyed it, but I think a lot of people would have a hard time kind of staying in that because it, it can feel a bit academic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting because maybe uh, some of that initially, well, certainly MI was new then, uh, and they were pulling together, you know, academic clinical data in order to, to, to support what they were saying. Right. And now that it's, it's, probably one of the most studied evidence-based practices and there's a tremendous amount of data they maybe feel that they can kind of pull back and make it a little more uh common language which is interesting because i think it speaks to one of the other changes um and i'm thinking of the writing reflex change wonder what you would call it helen i've i've asked things of practitioners and trainees, what words would you come up with? So what does it mean to you when you hear the writing reflex? What is it? What would you call it? Traps that clinicians fall into that hinder the therapeutic process. Absolutely. I often refer to it as like a switch that gets flipped in an individual where they then feel this urge, this desire to want to help yep. change. Yeah. What is it? Uh, the path to hell, hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I read about that once. <laughs> well, it's interesting because they've decided to move away from writing reflex and they're calling it the fixing reflex <laughs> that's funny <laughs> <laughs> so they'll have a big course correction <laughs> In illustration, they'll put a big picture of paul next to it <laughs> mm, probably not <laughs> that was a that was a vastly different reaction to the fixing reflex change than it was from the title change <laughs> <laughs> Makes me think of the Coldplay song, Fix You. Um, Yeah. Uh, Would you care to sing a little of it for us? um, I just know the tune, Amy. Go ahead. Yes, right. Not the words. Anyways, you'll have to listen. I love it. This is the first time we've had a singer sing on the podcast. We have to keep doing this. I, I am inspired now to see if perhaps... Well, I have to come up with an opera singer who's still alive, but maybe we could get an, an MI practicing like. <laughs> well, it t- 
It ties into me remembering Bill Miller has a great sense of humor. <laughs> and when you ask him about am I, and it's about doing and being, he had a slide, right? Wasn't it one of the doobie doobie do doobie doobie do? Yes. Because <laughs> it's about doing and being. <laughs> That's Truly. Cool. But so what? So tell me more about this this new thing going on with the fixing versus the writing. Is there some like essential difference, or is it just semantics? It's I the word. So. I it's think the it word. is semantics. I would have folks in there, if you didn't have the words on a slide in a training, and and we actually, I don't think we do. And, and I mean this to say one of my colleagues and I do state trainings and we have this set slide deck that we use. I don't think we put the words writing reflex on the slide. So sometimes when we use the words verbally without the visual, people are spelling it in their head w-r-i-t-i-n-g mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. um and then the, then you know as you right. can imagine it stops the learning because they're trying to think about what the heck we're talking about and when we describe what it means it's our desire to want to fix or help yeah. uh, in the situation so i i would imagine it's all about the semantics to make it user-friendly that it it's sensical when you first hear it, perhaps. What do you think, Helen? Well, can I get back to the writing? Like the yes. writing? Yes, W-I-R-I, yeah. So this, I know this is slightly tangential, but I was just thinking like if somebody automatically gets that wrong in their mind, it's actually kind of a, it, it's a helpful way for the mind to go because sitting with a client and taking copious notes or being absorbed in one's you know, computer, you know, is very counter to what would be good MI practice, right? Mm -hmm. And in a sense, it is a good example of a trap someone falls into, particularly when they're not feeling very confident, or they're worried about not holding on to details or whatever it is that leads them to to disengage. And so in a sense, that mistake could be used to like symbolize a trap. Mm. And so let's talk about some of the other ways that we as therapists inadvertently create discord, make it harder for the person to even consider change within themselves. Mm. So, so I just, as you said that, I was like, well, it's, it's kind of interesting because it is in line, although it's wrong, <laughs> it is connected to the writing reflex. Yeah. You could tie it in. And spoken like a skilled expert trainer that you are, Helen, because it would be about maximizing the learning opportunity in that moment by helping the person to understand that writing notes or entering notes in a computer interferes with engagement mm-hmm. yeah. and, and helping people to understand that. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I do think that this is predominantly like a semantic change and the idea of people understand the idea of fixing the desire to fix, rescue, solve. And mm-hmm. it's funny, you know, I was, I was struck when Amy was saying like, you know, my colleague and I, we don't put that on the slide. I actually have two slides that are specifically dedicated <laughs> to this. Well, now see all the editing you have to do now. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's terrible. <laughs> And it's so funny because there's an acronym that goes along with it too, which is RULE, R-U-L-E, which the R is resist the fixing reflex, Mm -hmm. which still works. 
Then the U is understand your client's motivation, listen to your client, and E, empower your client, which perhaps leads us to the next change that is actually coming down the road. The Elbrick Road, yeah. Yes, the specifically the uh, well, actually more the MI4 road, but, but <laughs> but hopefully there'll be more of a yellow brick road to explore that on. <laughs> Are you hinting to the change that's coming in the spirit? I am. Ooh, you ready I, for it, Alan? I am. Uh, yeah, spoken in a very dramatic way, like the spirit of Christmas past. <laughs> spirit of MI future. <laughs> It's so timely. Although it listeners is. might listen to this in the summer, but right now we're embarking on <laughs> a highly Christian holiday called Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Celebrated by Charles Dickens <laughs> romance called A Christmas Carol. Go. Yes. So this change, you may recall the acronym PACE, P-A-C-E as part of the way to remember the four components of motivational interviewing. Currently, partnership, acceptance, compassion, and evocation. And that acronym will stay the same. So I wonder if you have a guess of which one of the letters will stay the same, but the word will change. So there's partnership, acceptance, um, compassion, and empowerment. <laughs> 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 no? yeah, that's the new one. That's, <laughs> it's so funny, Helen, because you just hit on the new one. I knew that was the, so I knew the E was the one that was changing. Ah. I just didn't know what it's changing to. It's changing I, to empowerment. empowerment. Yeah, well, that makes sense. That's a no brainer. <laughs> why I must have said it because I actually did never really like the first way it was said. Evocation. Yeah. Yeah. Evocation. Um, because it puts the power, if it feels like it puts too much emphasis on the practitioner ultimately versus remembering that the power to change lies within the person who's mm. going to make the change. Right. Mm -hmm. Not you, although we we sometimes forget that, like we think we're very important, but we're not. Right. The fixing reflex that we have. That <laughs> tells us we're formally known as the artist writing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So, so Helen, uh, um, you know, it, it, although Amy attempted very um, vigorously to turn this into like a game show, where, where, <laughs> where you know. <laughs> You you hit upon the change immediately uh, and in a very organic and natural way. And I'm wondering, because I agree with you, I really like that it's empowerment. And it also raises a concern for me as a trainer. Yeah, why? Well, the, the concern is that, and I don't know if, if either you or Amy have had this experience, but oftentimes people will say, I empower my clients. Mm. I hate that. Yeah. I, well, I, I get the spirit of it. Mm. And it's it's kind of contrary to MI because as you, you know, very naturally and very comfortably said, you know, it's about helping them tap into and take ownership of their power to actually make this particular change. So I guess I'm wondering, 
what your thoughts are and what Amy's thoughts are about how when this change, when, when we, cause I've actually already started to roll this change out in terms of like talks that I've had already. And I guess I'm wondering what your thoughts are about how you respond to when people are like, and I, and I, I know that in my experience, oftentimes people with lived experience who are in the role of being peer supports, which is an invaluable and, and unique, uh, type of service to be able to offer how how can how can we help people to understand that it's empowering the person to use their strengths and their abilities and their thinking as opposed to that we are empowering them <laughs> i want to hear from amy <laughs> I have my own feelings when you talk about peers and all that I have a lot of strong feelings so I'm going to work through them while she talks so I think we're making the rules of this game show up as we go and you can pass to the the other uh contestants so I will <laughs> <laughs> well I I actually had a reaction of pause when I heard empowerment and Helen I I won't speak to a person but that's some of the buzz I heard at this conference where some people were also having these kinds of conversations about, oh, I don't know about that. Um, and, and I think from a semantic perspective and from the perspective of people using the word loosely, just like when we say we meet people where, where they're at. And, and I always wonder, do we really, um, and how do we, and what does that look like? So when I've been learning about motivational interviewing, I've been curious about semantics, which is funny because I'm not that geeky about words, even though the previous guest on our show calls me geeky in other ways. I would just go along and just, yeah, yeah, that sounds like a good word. And now I've started to learn about am I better when I question the words. So what does that mean? What does it look like is what I care about. And I want to ask people who are learning about am I what does it mean to you? What does it look like? What are you doing when you're empowering people? So that doesn't really answer the question other than to say what I liked about what I learned after I asked that question was, I think words from Bill at the talk, was it a, it, it's really encapsulating uh, the autonomy piece and we could measure it and we use the instrument, the motivational interviewing treatment integrity scale, which helps us measure those things that we're hearing client autonomy language, or it's up to you. It's your choice. How would you like to go about this? So I was questioning the word empowerment at first. And then when I started to examine it in greater detail, I got more excited as a learner and a trainer of MI that, oh, I could touch it. I could feel it. I could hear it. So that's what I like about it. Can I ask a follow-up question? I know I sound like Paul. Paul. <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> I like to mess with him when he asks that and I say, no, no, thank you. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Um, so Amy, <laughs> I, I want to know what, what was the most negative interpretation like um, from what you heard regarding the the negative buzz 
when you were at this conference listening to people's reactions or getting a feel for it, what's like the worst possible thing that could happen around this change that people see on the horizon? That's a really great question. I didn't hear a lot of specifics other than this pause of, I'm not sure that feels right. I don't like it. So it could be, you know, evocation is that comfortable shoe that I've been wearing for a long time. And now I have to put this other one on. It could be semantics. And, and so I'm just speculating. I, I did not hear the reasons why some people paused more than others. And I wonder if it has to do with this power over and maybe, maybe overuse of the word empowerment from that perspective of I'm going to empower you as this person with the magic wand helper person that's going to do it. But that's completely speculative. And I think a good question, not just for an answer, but to invite people to think about how would they interpret it for themselves? What does this mean? What does it look like? What would you do to empower someone? Because it's almost like we're, we do have that magic wand and what are we going to do with it? Um, well, so I, I'm not really sure. Yeah. Clients are often looking and at least in my practice, it's not uncommon. And Paul knows this from working as a trainer with my team. Clients are sometimes looking for that, um, that answer and for us to come with a song and dance routine and, clinicians who enter the field, green clinicians are often under the impression that their job is to empower others mm -hmm. without further training and helping a client to, or clinician to understand that the client really is the change agent. You're a facilitator, you're a companion on the road, but they're the ones really doing that growth and transformation and em empowerment. Um, it can be, it could be a opportunity and the empowerment concept, if it isn't worked on with new clinicians, it could be definitely a point that gets misunderstood. And so this will be a lot of PowerPoint slides for Paul and others, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you could just do a whole day yeah. just on this concept. Actually, it won't be a whole lot of change for me. And I'll tell you why. I don't know when this happened. I don't know how long ago this happened. But for me, I, for a number of years now, and I wish I could kind of pinpoint when I made this kind of switch, because a couple of years ago when I would train on the spirit and I would train about evocation, I would talk about drawing out from the person their best ideas, their solutions. And I think that's still true. What that turned into for me, though, was empowering the person to exercise their autonomy. That that's really what we can do when we're doing the E part of the spirit is we're creating the opportunity for this person to say, yes, I want to. No, I don't want to. This is the direction that I want to go in. So for a number of years now, I've I've often thought of the evocation, the E in spirit as autonomy support. And to me, that's the ultimate empowerment. When you let somebody exercise their autonomy. So I've actually, you know, I've talked about that for a while now. 
And I'm glad that they actually changed the word to empowerment. I do still have that concern that the worker kind of sees themselves as the agent of empowerment. And the the switch that I try to help people to consider is that you're the agent of creating the opportunity for the person to exercise their autonomy. Sort of like when I say to somebody, is it okay if I ask you a question? That's an opportunity to exercise your autonomy. You can say no, or you can say yes. For sure. <laughs> and I think like to explore the dark side of being a person who empowers will be critical as this rolls out to recognize mm -hmm. like what is the dark side of that? How can that be exhausting and lead to burnout? So like there's mm. a nice part of it where you're like, hey, I'm empowering people. And then the dark side where you're like, I, I can't continue to do this. This is because you see that a lot where people are like, I care too much. I'm too, I'm too caught up in empowering everyone. I'm exhausted, you know? You know, and listening to to both of you talk about that very thing, it's a conversation we, we're having, whether the word changed from evocation to empowerment anyway, around the belief that the person has it within them. So the, the, the notion or the spirit of evocation is not um, leaving uh, motivational interviewing. I think Bill indicated, Bill Miller indicated that it was a little redundant because we use it in the four processes, which we'll talk about as well. And just in general about eliciting from the person, from this concept that it's within them. So I think they're really good points. And I don't think they're gonna, this notion of people thinking it's their responsibility to fix change or empower people is going to go away no. in, in our field uh, anytime soon. Uh, and that would be great because people would stay a little bit longer and, and perhaps not burn out when they know um, that they're a guide. And, and you like you said, uh, on the road and on, with them on this journey together, that they don't have a responsibility to fix them or to empower them. And it's really about helping them realize that they have the ability, that they have strengths, and we're going to draw that out. And if there's a gap there, we would ask permission, like Paul does so eloquently, before we give that. Um, and that's part of that partnership piece. You know, I'm glad you added that, Amy, because it made me think of something that came up during this recent training that I got to do with Dr. Miller and Dr. Moyers, Dr. Terry Moyers. And it was about this idea of that part of the essence of motivational interviewing is believing that the person has what they need and we're drawing that out from them. And one of the things that, that I think that they very realistically acknowledged, because I think a participant in the training said like, well, you know, I'm sitting across from this person and I've just taken their history and I know they they don't have some of the things they need. And, and they very eloquently pointed out that, yes, of course, the person may not have everything they need at their disposal in that moment, and they have resources that they can draw on and potentially use those resources to get the other things that they need. And, and I think that distinction is important because some people 
express the difficulty sitting across from a person who's in a very painful, troubled place and kind of seeing that person is having everything that they need within them. So they they were able to really tease that out to make a, a clear distinction about what having what you need in you really means. You know what this reminds me of, Paul, speaking of Yellow Brick Road? What? It's Dorothy and the slippers, those ruby slippers. They are something external that she gets. It's not like the ruby slippers lived inside of her. Mm. She had many things inside of her that helped her and allowed her to transform and get through that harrowing experience. But she did need those ruby slippers ultimately mm. to get home. And so in a sense, we always need things that we don't necessarily come through the door, both as practitioners and as clients that we don't necessarily enter the room with initially. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't, it's, we, it's like looking at a fixer upper kind of house. You say the bones are good. There's a lot of potential. We're going to have to add some stuff to make it habitable. (laughs) And maybe recovery is the journey that the person goes Mm. through like the journey that Dorothy went through in order to be able to use the slippers that even though they're external, she couldn't use them right away. She had to go through a journey in order to use them. Right. And if somebody had just wandered to Dorothy right from the get-go and said, Hey, I got some slippers for you. Just forget about, you know, come on, come on over here or the tree or I don't, whatever, some random weird entity along the way tried to sell her those shoes give her those shoes she wouldn't have been open to it but yes I mean ultimately it it had to come and it still it's still mad it's still helpful it's a still helpful I don't know I'm, I'm rambling but it's I think just because the person doesn't come with all the pieces in place doesn't mean we can't work with whatever little there is because that little spark is what's going to move it forward. Mm-hmm. I think it speaks to the importance of the partnership. We can't mm-hmm. forget that we are a partner in this relationship. Mm-hmm. And it's a really nice analogy. I never thought about the Ruby slippers. Gosh, I don't know why. What what a great analogy to use for a podcast on motivational interviewing. Well, that's why Helen is here, Amy. <laughs> I know. I know. Tigers, I love it. Tigers and bears. Oh my. Right? Am I? Am well, I? Yeah, so, <laughs> but it, it's even a good, it's a good, uh, I was thinking of an analogy to the extrinsic motivation that mm-hmm. people, um, people can move and make a change because of. So the Ruby slippers can be extrinsic in that way as well. Mm-hmm. We as helpers can help them explore how does this work for them? How do they want to go about it? What do these slippers mean to you? Right? Because if we asked her in the beginning, would she try them on, wear them, especially, gosh, she walked a long way down the yellow brick road. They, they must have hurt her feet. So, <laughs> And we gave her an opportunity to figure it out. And You know, perhaps this is stretching the metaphor way too far, but, you know, it's radio, so why not? Um, It is, you know, 
if you think about it, she gets the slippers through a very traumatic event. And, you know, I'd never quite thought of it that way before, but based on what Helen said, (laughs) you know, she, and I'm blaming Helen, she gets them, she gets them in a very traumatic way and they become the part of her. Well, and they also become the resource which brings her home. Correct. Like that research done by actually a woman who presented in Buffalo, that book Strong in the Broken Places, Mm -hmm. right? So that which has caused a fracture is often the source of our change, is often the source of how we forge forward that Mm. fissure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we have to have a whole episode on the ruby slippers for sure <laughs> okay so opening opening the door to so many different metaphors around those ruby slippers well if that is the case of course one of our special guests <laughs> if helen is willing to come back we have to invite helen to come back for that episode love shoes yeah if it's about agree all in <laughs> So there's there's really only one additional change that that I'm certainly aware of. Amy, you may be aware more, uh, but there's one additional change that I'm thinking of specifically. Actually, I think there are two, but I was thinking of the affirmations one. But would you would you prefer to go with the other one first, Amy? No, I think we should slide right into affirmations. I uh, was thinking of that one, and I. I believe there's one more, just a, a some maybe a semantic thing. Yes. And that one will be easier to perhaps just mention. Yes. And then because that- I'm I'm really hung up on this simple versus complex affirmation. Yes. So that's the change, Helen. So here's the test, contestant number one, Helen. <laughs> Contestant number only, Helen. (laughs) Competing with myself, yeah. Please describe for the audience (laughs) the difference between simple and complex affirmation and give us an example in a sentence. (laughs) Walking backward. Okay, so what, so can you, I want to hear an example, Paul. (laughs) <laughs> Help me understand exactly what this would look like in real time. Well, understood. And that's what we're all trying to figure out <laughs> as well. Um, and, and I did have the opportunity recently of hearing Bill and Terry touch on this yet again, because Amy and I heard Bill in uh, Chicago talk about this. And just as a setup, is you know that there's, of course, simple and complex reflections. Mm -hmm. And affirmations, if you think about it, are really kinds of reflections. They're reflections that focus on a particular strength or effort that somebody is making or an intrinsic strength that they have. So, So Bill, in some of his thinking and writing about this and then conversations with uh, Dr. Rolnick and Dr. Moyers and probably many other people, they're really suggesting this idea that there are simple affirmations and then there are complex affirmations. So simple affirmations, and again, this is my understanding of the definition, Amy, jump in, save me at any moment, uh, is that 
they speak to more surface uh, effort-driven things, effort in the moment, things that people are doing or efforts that they're making in the moment. Complex affirmations are more about intrinsic characteristics or qualities that the person has that are inherent or innate strengths that can be leveraged in their process of change or growth. Makes I sense. can I can add to some of it because I was really curious about, uh-oh, what does this mean? And what I thought is not what a simple affirmation, I thought they were bringing about it's okay for cheerleading. That's what I thought a simple reflection was going to be. A simple affirmation. Uh, affirmation, sorry. Simple yeah, affirmation. Yeah. Good yeah. job. Uh, that's awesome. Fabulous. And encouragement and reinforcement is part of simple affirmation. A reinforcement could be, and, and I'm taking this out of Denise Ernst and Jen Manuel's book on deliberate practice of motivational interviewing, where they describe a reinforcement could be, hey, good job on on getting your homework done, keep that work up, you know? So you're adding the specificity to it. Uh, encouraging could be, you did this or you can do this, right? And then they also offered appreciation as part of their example of a simple affirmation. I really appreciate, Helen, that you took the time out to join us on this podcast where you're now a contestant on a talk show host <laughs> <laughs> being tested though. Um, I appreciate you coming here and spending this time uh, talking to us about the changes in MI. So this, because I was hung up on this, what does that mean? How am I going to listen for the difference? Someone offered a, you did it. And I thought that was a really good affirmation. And I think that that would fall in the category of simple and complex as Paul eloquently shared is that it's, really specific about their strength and ability and goes deeper uh, in that way. So I, I trust that when I code or listen for people's work and give feedback, that I'm going to be splitting hairs about these. <laughs> I just know it. <laughs> so that's just some of the things that I took away from the deliberate practice in motivational interviewing book. I was eager to hear examples of the difference. So it's like, what's on the surface, what you can see, what's very obvious, like simpletons could see it. No, I'm joking. Simple. <laughs> and then complex is what's not visible, what's not tangible, but you hear it, the between the lines kind deeper. of deeper. Um, yeah. I, was anybody mad about this change or found it offensive? I mean, people hate change anyways, but it was anybody right. in negative reaction. I haven't heard heard anything. I I know it made me stop and think. I was very curious about what it was going to look like. Um and now I'm curious about how I'm going to delineate the because the simple reflection examples that uh Denise and Jen offer in their book, I would have identified as an affirmation out of the gate no matter what and didn't have to worry about simple versus complex. I think I worry about being a practitioner or practitioners worrying that 
they're not doing good enough because simple versus complex and complex seems like it's harder, uh, not necessarily intentionally meant to be that way. You know, I was really thinking about it from the utility behind making this distinction because I understand the utility of making the distinction from a simple and a complex reflection. And I kind of applied that in terms of why they would feel the need because all of it could all be under the umbrella of just affirmations. But to distinguish between a simple affirmation and a complex affirmation, to me, the utility of it is similar to the utility of the distinction between a simple and a complex reflection. And that is that a complex reflection more meaningfully and more deeply communicates to the person your your accurate understanding of where they are in that particular moment. And I think that the complex affirmation more deeply reflects back to the person this essential or intrinsic element that no matter what has happened to them can't be destroyed or can't be removed because it's just part of who they are. And I and I think what they're saying is, is that there's there's a greater impact in being able to offer that kind of reflection to somebody, that kind of affirmation to somebody, as opposed to just what's on the surface. Both are both have their function, both are necessary, but one is going to have a, a deeper more engaging impact it's like it's like really being seen for who you really are that's my my take on it attunement it's like real real intensified attunement and then it links also to this new word that they're throwing in the growth word mm -hmm. right so then you know if we can really get to the deeper motivations strengths yep, yep. good stuff then we'll see yep. greater growth. Yeah. And I love how you're connecting that to attunement, Helen, because to me, that's something practical that providers can work to increase. And, the, and there are tremendous benefits in being more uh, acutely attuned to somebody. Yeah. I think the more and more I hear the statements, affirmations, simple versus complex examples will help me more and more solidify that because the way you both have conversed about it and articulated that it just has a deeper meaning to it or movement around it. Because when you hear, well, I appreciate that you came in today or you can do this, um, you got this, right? Those are really encouraging words. Um, but when you consider a more complex affirmation. And I'm digging back into the deliberate practice book, um, talking about their character and, and strengths and abilities. Like you have perseverance. You're not giving up on this, right? So it's um, another example they have is being a person of your word is really important to you. You've followed through, mm -hmm. right? So more like building up the self-efficacy that they like to us, you know, as we know, reflections and statements are 
mirrors of what the person is saying and doing and being. And I would imagine that those deeper of affirmations uh, may build those foundations for the person to hear their own strengths and hear their own abilities from an efficacious way for them mm-hmm. than it is to just say, Hey, I'm glad you came in today or, Hey, you made it in today or which are nice things to hear, you know, and Hey, great job that you, you want, you got through the homework and you had a busy week this week. It even feels surfacey <laughs> now that I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. So m- more to come as we listen in and practice simple and and, com- and complex reflections as well as complex affirmations meet a deeper human need, which is that need to be seen for who you really are and to be understood for where you are at a given yeah. moment. Yeah. So so I I I get I get the distinction. I think it's I think. I think it's great that we're talking about it and I hope that more people will talk about it so that, that they'll be able to own it for themselves. Um, And, you know, I know that's a, that's a process just like it's a process for me or any of us. So I just hope that people will, will do that. It'll help people work on the being part. Mm. versus the doing part because the complex affirmation will require increased skills on mindfulness mm-hmm. both in the what's going on in the session but also what's happening for you internally so the mm-hmm. e mm-hmm. part will get emphasized mm-hmm. that's i think that we should offer that quote up to miller and rolnick and maybe there's time to put it in the book and what would that quote be exactly and and helen of course will get the attribution for it so <laughs> what would the what would the quote be Go ahead, Ellen. Helen. But I think it I think it was about, let me paraphrase it. <laughs> but that simple versus complex affirmations help discern the difference between doing simple versus being am I? Because it takes a deeper listening and being with the person to understand where they're coming from. Maybe at that time in the session and over time, if you're working with someone for the longer haul. Did I get that right, Helen? Would you say it a little bit better for the book? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think you said it even better. And it just makes me think of the people that I help, the clinicians who are learning it, and how the newer people that are nervous get caught up in the technique. Yes. Like, which which strategy should I use today to make this person better? You know, but this conversation we're having about complex affirmations really speaks to just the leaning in trying Mm -hmm, to just mm -hmm. be present and maybe not focusing on getting through tasks as much as just hearing the person in Mm -hmm. a very deep way and making sure they feel heard. Yeah. Yeah. Being with the person. Right. Yeah. You know, I I don't know, Paul, if you use this or or have seen when we do, uh, we use the humans of New York. Oh yes. I've seen you use that. Yeah. And just having parts. So humans of New York, I think it's .org or .com is a photographer that interviewed folks on the street in New York and tells pieces of their story. And now they have different examples. Uh, Some people have substance use problems. Some people are homeless. Some people are veterans, et cetera. Right. Uh, So we take an example from humans in New York and invite 
the participants who are learning about affirmations to explore what's going on in that particular scenario. What, and I love that, Helen, because now I'm thinking about asking them, what is this person doing or, you know, what are they doing that tells you this? And, and then what's more important to them? What, what, what's their strength? What's their value? So we can prompt the questions to actually separate out simple. What would you say to him? Hey, good job that you're trying to save the community. Good job. Right. (laughs) Versus, you know, helping people is a really very important thing for you to, you know, help others get better or whatever, have what they need. So I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to improvise as I'm talking and that's not working very well. But oh, I, I love that. I love that. That's amazing. I love the use of that. And um, that's such a cool way to utilize that really um, emotionally powerful um, photojournalistic yeah. phenomenon. And if you ever get a chance, you should follow Su- Susie Seniors because when that photographer, he has a, he had a dog named Susie that he adopted as a senior and that started a whole movement. And that's a whole thing now where people adopt senior dogs because of the humans of New York guy I love it. and his dog, Susie. <laughs> well, and, and thank, thank goodness for this wonderful category of work that he has published because you could the you could see the person the real person a part of the story that you're telling so there's that quote it's their quote it's their face typically it's the picture of them or yeah and it brings it i think to life and that's what we're trying to do with motivational interviewing and it's the being part seeing that real person in that moment mhm well i think we can uh let Helen know that one last thing and then see where we, we go from here mm. besides having a episode on the Ruby slippers. <laughs> <laughs> I can see you're very keen on that idea. I'm very keen on the metaphor and how deep we can go in different aspects of MI that we <laughs> use the analogies. <laughs> the, uh, the last change that we're aware of, um, I think, is the four processes are now going to be referred to as tasks. And interestingly, this is my one takeaway, not one, my many takeaways from Bill Miller's wonderful work is during that talk, he said, you could still call it four processes. So (laughs) he, he told us that it was changing and it's okay to still call it four processes. So what do you think about that change, Helen? I don't really care about that change. It just sounds like a word to me. So unless it requires something different from the point of the person who's uh, facilitating that therapeutic conversation, then I guess like, I just, I just don't know how, like, what, what is that? How does that change look in real time? Like what's the, what's the real difference? Yeah. I I love that you're asking that question, Helen. And, you know, this is a podcast and sadly it's not visual because I wish you could have seen Helen's face when Amy revealed that big change. <laughs> Helen, was, <laughs> Helen was so nonplussed or moved by that big <laughs> revelation. And, uh, and I, and I can understand it hit me 
why Helen, you would not be sort of moved by that earth shattering change <laughs> reveal. Right. Because MI's not new to you. And because you get, I think, I mean, I know from, from your practice and, and also from the way you work with your supervisees, I know you get the four processes. You understand those four quote unquote tasks. So to change it from processes to tasks, practically speaking, it doesn't have any, there's no change really. It's you're still going to be engaging. You're still going to be focusing. You're still going to be evoking and you're still going to be planning. So there is no huge change. If you were brand new to motivational interviewing, I would imagine that if you said to somebody, oh, there are four tasks you accomplish when you're doing motivational interviewing might register differently than if you said, oh, there are four processes that you engage in. So I wonder if it if it has to do with uh, it's more of a benefit for someone who's MI naive as opposed to someone who's MI experienced. Because I agree with you 100 percent. Call it tasks, call it processes, call it, you know, um, steps on a ladder, call it whatever you want. But I know that the first thing I'm going to be doing is engaging. Then I'm going to work with that person to find a client-centered behavioral change goal. Then I'm going to evoke and and explore uh, ambivalence around that behavioral change goal. And then when there's enough change talk and I have an indication that this person is ready to plan, then I'm going to move into planning. So, so I, I, I understand. I wish that we had like an album cover because your face reaction <laughs> would have been perfect on it for this episode. Well, it's like, you know, pull, peeling back the curtain <laughs> and Oz, the great and powerful Oz turned around and was like, yeah, whatever. It's <laughs> <laughs> a little man. Yes. It's a little guy. Well, I don't know, Amy, um, do you think like there's a major difference in those two i mean to me it's just a dumbing down of that so that the new people aren't as perplexed maybe by the word process processes or whatever maybe it's just a simpler word i don't know like making it less intimidating i don't know i don't you know i that's a i, I don't really i didn't really give it much thought i think if i <laughs> I had to look back over my first reaction, I would have maybe, maybe had the same reaction to you, Helen, you know, uh, not jazzed up. Didn't think much about it. So again, diving into the words and the meanings. And I, I now think about it as a facilitator of change of practitioners who are learning MI and being a practitioner of MI, what does it mean to me? So I, I looked up the definitions while you were talking, <laughs> just simple definitions. A process is a series of actions or steps taken in order to achieve a particular end. So that's an interesting nuance, perhaps, um, in MI, because are we really worried about the end? I don't think too much. And yet task is a piece of work to be done or undertaken. Not necessarily, or another definition is an assigned piece of work often to be finished within a certain time. Mm. So I don't know that that helped you it, right now. It has yet to help me. Um, 
<laughs> you know what it does? So here's how I differentiate it, Amy. And I don't know if this is what they intended. When I think of process, the way that you, the definition you read, I think of like a thread and mm-hmm. in order or like a fabric or something, there's a, a seamless thing that has to be. Whereas task, you could just do one task. Mm-hmm. And not do the rest and that one or two tasks on it those tasks on their own may be mm. all that's needed you don't necessarily have to get through the whole thing to help a person make change and I've seen that in conversations where I don't do much of anything and somehow the person leaves and they're like no I'm not gonna smoke cigarettes anymore I had that happen once actually after one of Paul's trainings <laughs> I tried to use all the skills I could but I probably only got through a few of those tasks, maybe one or two. And we just had this profound conversation. So you don't have to do the whole process, you know, all the processes. That is why this conversation and us inviting you to this conversation has been so valuable to explore and examine from perspectives, because that was so well said, and you've given it some deep thought about, well, what does it really mean? And it's an I'm taking that with your permission and finding my own paraphrase quote, because that's so true that people think that I have to get to the planning. I have to get to this place and being able to offer it up as a task. What's your task? And I learned and articulated well from Paul's mentoring and our conversations together about the intentionality using the four processes and my intention is to always engage with people. I don't have to worry about focusing. I don't have to worry about the other things right now or at this time. And maybe that's my only role. And when we talk about people in the system that would be considered assessors or case managers that that maybe don't follow through the whole process with people in their change goals or in their change process, we wanna invite them that your task is to engage people. So I'm starting to actually want to think about this even more. And, you know, I'll, 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 along those lines, you've really inspired me to think that without the engagement, which is quote unquote, the first task, you're never going to get to any of the other ones. Mm -hmm. So, so, and as Bill has often said, and I've heard him and many other people say, if you don't put the time in for the engagement, the being with the person, you won't you won't be able to find a, a behavioral change goal. You won't be able to focus. And then you won't be able because you don't have the engagement, you won't be able to evoke. So thinking of it as like this is the primary task. And then depending on what else is going on, you either move to the next one or the next one. But the primary task, especially with motivational interviewing, because without the engagement, and of course, that's guided by the spirit. So without that, there's no, there's nothing to go forward with. Preach, Paul. Preach. (laughs) (laughs) You got the mic. Where's the podium? (laughs) Well, I am sitting. So, well, I was just thinking I I put together a a practice of MI worksheet that people could use when they're watching their colleagues or listening to their own recording, you know, just not a, a verified coding instrument, but just 
think about what you're hearing. And I put the four tasks in and asked people to circle what task was the main, main, what was the main task of this interaction? And it's now I'm starting to think about that. Will it work? As there's times in trainings where we're talking with people about engaging in a conversation and we have assessors that that's their primary role is to assess people. Um, they don't worry about the other four processes or case managers that don't worry about the change goal because they're helping them find resources in the community. So their task primarily is to engage, maybe a little bit of focusing depending on what they're. So, so there might be some utility in the use of the word for, I don't want to say compartmentalizing, but to uh, address specific needs of the role of the person that's helping the, because we don't uh, work with only a, a person by ourselves. There's a, a team of people around us that are part of the tasks. Mm -hmm. And you can train in keeping with what you're saying. Once you know the strengths of the people who are learning MI and some of the deficits, you can start to break down maybe in a more operationalized way what you're going to focus on. Like, you know, I see these strengths around these tasks. Mm -hmm. You really got these tasks down. This one's a little harder. These tasks, you know, so you can really break it down maybe more specifically. Although to be fair, I think you could do that with processes too. But I do think the word task is a, just an easier concept to swallow. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. You know, it made me think too that I'm in a different mindset. If you tell me my task is to ask and get answers for these 25 questions, or if you tell me my task is to engage the person in a conversation and start to build a relationship with them. I mean, that that changes the way that I'm thinking about what I'm doing. But, and and it, it's really subtle and and maybe, well, let's we'll have to figure it out when we start to train and, and coach people this way. Now that you know what the change goal is, the focus that the person has, what what's your next task? What's your next versus worrying about? I don't know. It's just a word. You're right. And I don't know. It's got me thinking. Now I love the word. Now, you know, I didn't care at the beginning, you know, I made that face, but I've decided now after our discussion that I hate the word process, <laughs> the word task, and I'm ready to throw the word processes or whatever that word was in the garbage. Now I'm serious. I'm not being serious. Yeah. I actually have come, I've decided like I'm done with that other word. And I think I will remember, I, I have a hard time remembering the four processes. I know them in my heart, but like, yes. But I think I could actually remember tasks. Mm -hmm. oh, that sounds bizarre, but like, I think it's actually going to stick better in this new format. And I think that's partly the goal in these semantic changes is for a, 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 a more adhesive kind of uh, absorption and accessibility. Because like, if you say to somebody who doesn't know anything about motivation, there are four tasks that you focus on as you do this work, which is very different than if you say there are four processes that you engage. <laughs> and again, I've said it for years now and people get it and they know what it means, but there's, there's a greater accessibility. Mm -hmm. Right. You don't have to think too hard. I, I think about my 
uh, evolution in learning MI. And I think because I train it, I remember pace better, but I used to think what P is K C is compared. No, I don't know which, what is what, but I'd remember them intuitively. Like you said, Helen, and I remember the, the, um, principles, there were principles of MI. There were five. And I was trying to remember those and what does it mean? And I think that when we break down the spirit, we could see it, we could touch it, we could identify it when we're experiencing it and doing it. Yeah. When we're using the skills, we obviously can count the skills. And now we have a direction with tasks that we know what we're supposed to be doing because the person doesn't know where they want to go yet. So we know we're our only task right now is to engage them and help them feel comfortable and safe in our conversation. Yep. And you can yeah. celebrate that with the person learning. Mm-hmm. Really, you really learned that task. You really got it. It's intuitive. It's come, it's just so natural for you now. Awesome. All right. Next one. Right. Right. Focusing. Yeah. 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 You know, it, 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 this may be a fitting way to sort of draw the curtain closed on this particular <laughs> episode. Uh, and it's funny because I, I feel like I had a little bit of an insight into, and this is very perhaps idiosyncratic and personal, but I feel like I had a little bit of an insight into Dr. Miller when he was sharing these changes with us in Chicago. And, and again, Helen, I can't thank you enough to have had the opportunity to engage in this conversation with you about them because it's really expanded my my thinking and and my curiosity about how these are are going to like play out once that book is published and available. Bill said uh he was talking about that phrase that was in I think the second edition and Amy you made me think of it when you were talking about the five principles which i think one of those principles was rolling with resistance mhm yes it was and bill in his in his charming sort of way said oh you know it was really hard for me to let that one go <laughs> me too because well and everybody else on the planet <laughs> but he said and again and i think this is why these changes that they're making now are so powerful, even if they are semantic, because he said that, you know, rolling re with resistance was so hard for me to let go because I love alliteration and I love the fact that it was like rolling like Rolnick. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and to have that kind of insight into kind of what motivated him to make some of the language choices that he did. Yeah. That made sense to him. That felt kind of nice and cozy to him, but he wasn't afraid to let it go when there was a new direction that was being presented by what was going on. So I took that as, as a real opportunity to think about how I can't get too comfortable with what I may think is best for this particular person that I'm providing services to or sitting across from because they may have a whole other take on that. And I need to be able to let go of that in order to meet them where they are. And I feel like 
you know, Bill and Steve are demonstrating letting go of what was familiar and what made sense to them in service of trying to give motivational interviewing to people in a much more accessible, broad way. You know, I, I, I w- want to share a conversation that I had with Bill as I got paired up with him in a workshop and I looked at him and I said, thank God we're not practicing reflections. <laughs> I remember when I saw somebody in a workshop sitting next to him and, and it was time to, I think it was Steve Berg Smith who does the snapping and the, and the, the kinesthetic learnings <laughs> that someone <laughs> leaned over and said, Oh my God, I got to pair up with Bill Miller <laughs> to practice reflections. <laughs> but we were talking about the this notion of how do we feel as part of the MI community? What was it like learning MI? What was it like um, becoming part of the motivational interviewing network of trainers? Um, and we had to debrief that with each other after we reflected on some of these questions. So I I turned to Bill and said, I'm just really curious about how do you, what do you think about all this stuff where I feel like this is your baby? Are we doing okay with your baby? Right. And we were talking about this analogy of marriage and wedding. So I brought in the family thing, the baby thing. And he said, no, I mean, instantaneously, he didn't even pause. I don't think of it as I own this thing. And then he, I think he paused for some time because he's very pensive and thoughtful and and he mentioned that he it's like he's the grandfather watching the family grow and watching the family make sense of things for themselves. And I would think that he would relish in the fact that we're sitting here together talking about his edits to his book, <laughs> reacting one way or another about whether it makes sense. I think he'd appreciate that where prior to my conversation with him, I'd be like, I hope he's not listening because we're like judging his book <laughs> before it's even published, which by the way, for listeners is coming out in 2023. We understand it's in the final editorial process. <laughs> be really interesting to see what the community at large's reactions is and whether any of what we've talked about today comes up in some of the smaller discussions or articles and other things that get written, it'll be interesting to see what other humans feel yeah. in response. But I, I hope it's a positive response overall, because as we know, MI is amazing stuff. And I hope that everyone can see the positive intent, clearly the positive intent with which it was written. For sure. It's been such a pleasure, Helen. Lovely meeting you. Lovely having this conversation. It really um, helped me articulate certain things that I was wondering. And I had similar reactions to you in some instances and just a rich conversation about what we're doing together, learning and practicing motivational interviewing. Thank you so much, Amy. It's been a pleasure to be here with you guys. I've learned so much just listening to you. Thank you for letting me know some of these changes and also just talking about your understanding of MI. You guys are both really interesting to listen to. Thanks for being here, Helen. It's really a pleasure. And I really value our our collaboration and our uh, collegial partnership. Me too. All right. So we hope to hear your thoughts 
uh, the listeners, if there are listeners, I'm, I hopefully there are listeners. Uh, so if you have any thoughts about any of these changes uh, or any of our conversation, please uh Use the email and and send us your thoughts. Uh, who knows? You too could potentially be a guest on lions, lions and tigers, tigers and, and bears. bears. <laughs> oh my! Am I? My. <laughs> oh my! It's am I? Holy <laughs> We could change the words to the song. That's all. We, right. we could. We could. So, all right. Well, hopefully, we'll see each other all again soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to episode 18 of Lions and Tigers and Bears MI. Stay tuned for more episodes in the near future. Cassette Podcast Network. This podcast has been brought to you by the Cassatt Podcast Network, located within the Center for the Application of Substance Abuse Technologies at the University of Nevada, Reno. For more podcasts, information, and resources, visit cassatt.org.